in the name of the God who both challenges us and offers us peace. Welcome to worship. My name is Kate Hanch, and I am blessed to walk alongside you as one of the associate pastors here at First St. Charles. This Sunday, we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Cringe. It's about the things that Jesus said in the Bible that make us cringe or second-guess on some things. Now, as somebody who has said some cringy things myself that I'd rather take back, I look forward to learning from this series. Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is the core teaching of Jesus that we might be strengthened. Thanks be to God. What are some things that make you cringe? Your eyes roll, your face crunches, your lips purse. Do you cringe when someone makes a politically partisan statement at a party, not knowing or caring if others think differently? How about when a friend overshares and tells people information you'd rather keep private. Or when someone says something that's clearly racist or sexist or homophobic. How about when someone says one thing but then follows it with a but and you know you're going to find out what they really think because the but contradicts everything they started out saying. Maybe your cringe-worthy moments are tied to poor grammar. Or is it behavior like someone chewing with their mouth open? Gross. Scriptures record quite a number of instances when Jesus said or did things that you know must have set the disciples cringing. There was the time He said, Go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. They should have cringed when Jesus referred to a Canaanite woman as a dog. It certainly wasn't politically correct when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. For the record, most of Jesus' followers were most likely affiliated with the populist Pharisaical movement. My goodness, he was offending his base. The disciple clearly cringed when all those kids start claiming Jesus' attention and he couldn't be bothered to shoo them away. And it certainly wasn't a family value statement when Jesus said that those who follow Him must hate 
their mother and father. So often did Jesus say and do such outlandish stuff that it's a wonder that their faces weren't permanently stuck in cringe mode. And if we're not at least occasionally cringing, are we really listening? Today we start a four-sermon series on things that cause the disciples to cringe. Today's scripture has several possible cringe-worthy moments. It starts as Jesus and his disciples leave Bethany for Jerusalem. It was about a two-mile walk, maybe 30, 45 minutes. Jesus, scripture says, was hungry. Up ahead, he sees a fig tree. Maybe he starts thinking about the sweet fruit. Maybe he was thinking about some of the figgy pudding that one of his rich followers had served over the holidays or the fig jam that Martha had for his toast the other day. Maybe he gets to thinking about the fig newtons that his mama made for him when he was a child and how he loved to dip them in a glass of ice-cold milk. Oh, wait, that was me. The closer Jesus gets to the fig tree, the more his mouth waters. But then he arrives and the fantasy bubble bursts. There are no figs, not under the low leaves that he could reach or under the high branches further up. Not a one. He found nothing but leaves. Now, in defense of the tree, Mark feels free to let us know that it wasn't the season for figs. Can't blame the fig tree for not having figs even more than your farmer can be blamed for not having fresh tomatoes year-round. Doesn't Jesus understand anything about agriculture? The fig was just minding its own business, which the botanists among us will remind us was to put out leaves, leaves to absorb sunlight and nutrients, big, healthy, luscious green leaves that were a sign of its health and would eventually lead to the production of figs. Doesn't matter. Jesus curses the fig tree. He doesn't say in polite King James Version, curseth thou. He blisters it. Maybe his blood sugar was getting low. He certainly appears hangry. There is nothing to suggest that the disciples were the least bit put off by his cursing. Many were, after all, fishers and sailors, and Jesus' salty language might just have made them feel right at home. The striking thing, the cringe-worthy thing, was Jesus' unjust treatment of the tree. Fast forward a few days later, and they came by the same spot only to see that that same poor tree was withered right down to its roots. Rabbi, look, they said, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Were they cringing at the power of Jesus' very word? What he says next will surely have them cringing because 
what comes forth from him seems like an object lesson on the power of prayer, seeming to promise that if they had faith, they could do such things and more. The faith to move mountains. Certainly it's true that the effect of our prayers, like the impact on the fig tree, often isn't seen until much later. Still, many of us reading this story have tried. We've honestly and fervently tried. Something or someone important to us have presented great need and we've prayed and prayed only to have nothing go our way, not in the least. This is the testimony of Huck Finn. Then Miss Watson, he said, took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? Why can't Miss Watson fat up? No, says I to myself, there ain't nothing in it. I went out in the woods and turned it over in my mind a long time, but I couldn't see no advantage about it. So at last, I reckoned I wouldn't worry about it anymore, but just let it go. Is the problem our transactional view of prayer? Is prayer a little more than the magic manipulation of the world as it was designed to work? Or are we the problem? Is it our lack of faith when we pray and pray and nothing comes of it? After a while, many are those who could testify to being in a place where they see no advantage about it. After a while, we just let it go. And so now, anytime someone starts in talking about the power of prayer, we just silently cringe. But you know what really ought to cause us to cringe? The discovery that we've just read Scripture out of context. Such must be my confession to you. And I should know better. The two mentions of the encounter with the fig tree are separated by six verses. And it's easy to skip over those six verses only to find ourselves guilty of sort of scraping the icing off an Oreo cooking and cookie and just eating the chocolate parts. You've got to know that's just wrong. 
In the ancient world, there was a literary device that the Gospels frequently use. It's called a chiasm, where a story starts to be told. Then we interrupt this story for breaking news, only later to return and finish off the story that we started. And all of Mark's readers would have understood what we miss. And that's that it's not an Oreo cookie without the delicious cream-filled center. It's the middle that's the main thing. It's all to say, here's the pointed part we so often skip over. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. When seen through the lens of this teaching, the incident of the fig tree is far from an object lesson about prayer that leaves us cringing with guilt. It's about the failure of religion to be a house of prayer for all the nations. The fruit that they were supposed to produce wasn't there when it was most needed. This is what Jesus was really hungry for. The temple was intended to be inclusive for everyone, to gather everyone in prayer. Instead, it had turned into one giant prophet center, and Jesus was bad, bad, bad for business. He was hangry, and he wasn't just turning over tables, he was turning religion over in the most disruptive way. Their practice of faith, like the fig tree, would wither under his words and actions too, down to its roots. Inasmuch as our worship, our practice of faith, becomes exclusive and only for our own benefit, we too will know Jesus' curse. That's the takeaway. He who could move mountains with his prayer can move tables and will move whatever it takes for our faith to produce for the sake of everyone. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, to kill him dead. And if you don't think 
that threat caused the disciples to cringe, you've missed even more. 